0: This is the SIECLA,
1: Supplemental 5, Assassination Vacation. I'm David Montgomery, host of the SIECLA, a history podcast covering France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and the
0: First World War. Hi, and I'm Sam Hume, the host of Pax Britannica and the History of Witchcraft. Last month, we both released podcast episodes that turned on big political assassinations. In Pax Britannica, the 1628 stabbing of George Villiers, the Duke of Buckingham and favourite of King Charles I. And in the Siècla, the 1820 stabbing of Charles Ferdinand
1: d'Artois, Duke de Berry, and nephew of King Louis XVIII. I was struck by this coincidence, but also by the many similarities between these two killings, as well as some key
0: differences. So my thanks to Sam for hopping on a call for an informal chat. Thanks for suggesting it. This is a brilliant idea, because you're right, there are so many comparisons to be made between these two killings, even though they're, you know, two centuries apart. Before we start diving into the comparisons,
1: I think it'd be a good idea to go over the basics of these two killings so everyone's on the same page. Sam, your murder happened first, so why don't you start by introducing us to the Duke of Buckingham and his assassin,
0: John Felton. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, the Duke of Buckingham, George Villiers, had been a favourite of James VI and I from about 1615. He had rapidly risen from the position of cupbearer to a member of the high nobility, continuing to climb the ranks until he was made Duke in 1623. Buckingham's relationship with the king was probably sexual in nature, at least in part, but he was a competent political operator in his own right, and effectively saw off every attempt to replace him in the affections of James, and after his death, in 1625, of his son Charles. That was, though, one of the few things he was actually competent in. His rapid promotion included a number of positions in the government, including the Lord Admiralship, and considering he had never been in a battle and was frequently seasick, he probably wasn't the best choice. His other main ability was for graft. He was famously, stupendously corrupt, even by the standards of the time, so he was already unpopular by the time that the Three Kingdoms went to war, and suddenly needed a Lord Admiral who knew what he was doing. Buckingham was indirectly or directly responsible for multiple failed naval expeditions, and the Duke's future assassin would be involved in two of those expeditions. John Felton was a career soldier who seems to have begun his career with an attack on Cardiz, arranged but not overseen directly by Buckingham. After spending some time in Ireland, he tried and failed to be promoted to captain. In an expedition to France in 1627, he again attempted to gain a commission as a captain, and was not only refused, but was not selected to be part of the initial force. For all of these setbacks, he blamed Buckingham personally. He eventually made it to the island of Ray, just in time to get involved in a failed storm of the fortress. He survived, although many didn't, and returned to England. Adding to this, Felton repeatedly complained that he had not been paid, And believed that this was down to the Duke, too. Combining with his personal grudges against Buckingham were the political complaints coming out of Parliament, and all of this combined was enough motivation for Felton to travel to Portsmouth, approach the Duke in a crowded inn, and stab him in the heart. So David, do you want to tell us about the French assassination? Sure, just a little bit of a background. In 1814,
1: and then again in 1815, uh, the powers of Europe, including England, defeated Napoleon and put on the throne of France Louis Eighteenth, the elderly and morbidly obese brother of the guillotined Louis XVI. Louis XVIII's agenda, pursued with uh, fits and starts, was to try to reconcile the divided people of France with his Bourbon dynasty, but his long-term plans were severely hampered by one of the biggest defects a king could have. He was childless. Louis' heir was therefore his younger brother, the Comte d'Artois, who was also elderly. Artois was not childless, but his own eldest child was also seemingly incapable of fathering children. That meant that the future of the dynasty, the only hope of keeping the crown in the family rather than seeing it go to distant and disliked cousins, was if Artois' youngest son had a child. This youngest son was the Duke de Berry, a hothead and notorious playboy who was only recently married. As of 1820, Berry had fathered a daughter, but still no sons, and under France's ancient inheritance laws, The throne could only be inherited through the male line. Enter Louis-Pierre Louvel, a middle-aged, largely illiterate saddlehand, who was also a devoted Bonapartist, a devotee of the Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte. Louvel had served with Napoleon's Grand Armée, Uh, had also worked in the stables on the island of Elba, when the emperor was exiled there. Now, he was consumed with hatred for the royal family that had replaced Napoleon, and he hatched a plan to end the dynasty starting with the only bourbon who seemed capable of fathering an heir, the Duke de Berry. On February 13th, 1820, Louvel lurked outside the Paris Opera, where Berry and many other grandees were attending a triple feature. Just before 11pm, the Duchesse de Berry complained of feeling tired, so her husband escorted her out to a waiting carriage. As the Duke turned to go back into the opera, Louvel rushed out of the fog and plunged a seven-inch dagger into Berry's back. Uh, This wound was fatal, but not before Barry had time for a long, dramatic death scene, in which he blessed some of his very many illegitimate children, uh, and pleaded with the king to pardon his killer. But into this mood of tragedy came a wild card, when the Duchess announced that she was pregnant. Pregnant, as it would turn out, with a posthumous son and heir to Barry and the Bourbon line. So, Sam, what kind of impact did Buckingham's death have on Charles' regime? Did it bring him additional support or sympathy? Did it
0: weaken him politically? I mean, the first and most immediate result was that it very brutally removed one of the most unpopular figures of Charles' government. And throughout the rest of Charles' reign, no other individual would hold anywhere close to the amount of influence that Buckingham would Charles, at this point, could have chosen to distance himself from his prior reign. He could have said, could have drawn a line under it and said, okay, from now on I'm going to rule in a different way, I'm going to govern differently. That was all Buckingham's influence. But he didn't. He continued to rule in the same way he had before, he continued to rack up complaints, but now he didn't have an infamous evil counsellor that he could shift all the blame onto. He had William Lord and the Earl of Stratford, they were also high profile, but again, they didn't have the influence that Buckingham had enjoyed, and so they didn't have as much effect as a successful scapegoat. In terms of sympathy, there was barely any, at least publicly. The public presses rejoiced at the murder. Now, this obviously horrified Charles, because this man was, if not a father figure to him, a best friend, and here were his subjects cheering his murder. But it did bring him closer to the future Archbishop of Canterbury, William Lord, because Lord had also been very close to Buckingham. Although this wasn't wasn't a good thing for either of their personalities in the long run. And one silver lining, one positive to come out of it, was his marriage. His marriage with Princess, the French Princess, as it happens, Henrietta Maria, had been difficult for political and diplomatic reasons, but also because of the presence of Buckingham. Because Buckingham rightly saw the Princess as a contender for Charles's affections, for Charles's attention, and so the strain had been there. With his removal, their marriage became much better, and within a couple of years, the, the Queen was now pregnant with the future Charles II. So in that sense, in a political sense, because, you know, heirs are very important, it was an improvement. But I don't think it was a price that Buckingham would have willingly paid. Was the removal of Buckingham
1: as an advisor
0: uh, in terms of the quality
1: of the advice he was giving was that a, an improvement for Charles, or did
0: that not make a difference? I think it had a role to play with the eventual peace with both the Habsburgs and the separate peace with Spain, because Buckingham was he had accidentally brought the kingdoms into war with France because of the general machinations of uh, Cardinal Richelieu, and his removal meant that obviously now the highly personal diplomatic goings-on of uh, early modern Europe, his better relations with his French wife meant that he was going to have better relations with the French kingdom. Buckingham himself, in terms of, say, religious matters, was being advised by Archbishop William Lord. Now the middleman is removed, and Lord was speaking directly to the king. So, in that sense, I don't think it was as much of a. It gave as much of an impact as uh, Felton certainly wished. To turn it back on you, David, um, what impact did uh, the Duc de Berry's death have on the French regime? It had a, a very significant political impact.
1: Uh, for one thing, uh, it sparked a huge wave of sympathy uh, for Louis and, and the, the Bourbon family, uh, it swayed a lot of moderates into uh, sort of at least temporary support for the Bourbons the The crime was seen as an outrage, uh, and a lot of people who'd been on the fence or even critical of some of the the political decisions that Louis and his government had been making, uh, suddenly switched sides. It also highlighted concern that uh, about the. the the sort of revolutionary potential that France still had, uh, less than a generation away from the French Revolution. Uh, So it it sparked a a backlash against France's left-wing opposition group, the Liberals, who'd been gaining in multiple consecutive elections and seemed on the verge of maybe seizing power in the French Parliament, the elected chamber of deputies. And this was deliberately played up by royalist political actors uh, who played down uh, Louvel's very real Bonapartist sympathies. And cast him as a, uh, a stalking horse of the liberal opposition accusing him of acting under either the inspiration or the direct orders of prominent liberal politicians like the Marquis de Lafayette, or a Lee Decaze, uh, who was uh, Louis XVIII's favorite, uh, who was sympathetic to the liberals and was widely detested by the uh, French right wing. The, the murder of Barry ended up being uh, Decaze's downfall. He was pushed out as a sort of sacrificial lamb, showing that perhaps Louis XVIII, whatever his uh, other faults, had slightly better political instincts than Charles I. In addition to Decaze's downfall, it also led to a backlash in the French Parliament, which passed some repressive laws, including changing the election laws to favor conservative candidates, and effectively neutered the liberals as a political force for half a decade. Uh, Louvel, meanwhile, was captured, uh, immediately confessed to the crime, and was eventually guillotined after a one-day trial before the upper house of the French parliament, the Chamber of Peers. Interestingly, he died in relative obscurity, uh, subsumed beneath the country's broader political dramas, to which he was connected only as an alleged
0: pawn. So that's interesting. So the parallels between 19th century France and 17th century England, Scotland, and Ireland are clear in that we've got a monarchy that's dealing with a not not a cooperative assembled body. We'll leave it. We'll put it like that. But the outcomes of the murders are very different, and I wonder what kind of difference do you think it made that in the English sense, Felton murdered a political figure, whereas Louvel had killed a member of the royal family. I think that was
1: probably really important. For one thing, you know, political figures are by definition controversial uh, because they're they're taking political stands which people have political opinions. Dynastic figures are often sort of a, a step removed, or, or they're more symbolic. It sounds like people can't hate kings and princes, but they're, they're not often on the front line in terms of going out there and, and taking political positions. And certainly Barry, while he had his own politics, was not as intimately involved in the trenches and associated with specific decisions as uh, the Duke of Buckingham was. So in, in that sense, I think it was probably certainly helped engender more sympathy as opposed to, you know, the elimination of a politician. This was the future of the regime, the future of the king, to which uh, a lot of French people had some general support, even if there was varying degrees of intensity. Interestingly, in the English case, uh, it was the king's favorite who was murdered. In the the French case, the king's favorite also ended up being the political loser in the situation. Uh, The elite cause was ended up being forced out uh, by being blamed or associated with the, the murder. His rhetoric was accused of having inspired Louvel, and there were even direct conspiracy allegations made in the French Parliament that he had ordered it. Both early 19th century France and 17th century England were very conspiratorially minded places. You know, the the king's favorite, the king's advi- evil advisors, as the as the trope goes, were very easy to blame. Whereas uh, someone who's a little more distant from politics, like uh, Barry, uh, was a much more sympathetic figure. Even even people who disliked Barry disagreed disagreed with his politics, which were fairly right-wing, found it much more difficult to attack Barry. There was a few people in the French left made some half-hearted attempts to celebrate the death, but uh, they were relatively few and far between, and they were very quickly suppressed in the wave of repressive laws that followed the assassination.
0: I think that's a very good point, because the the, the point you made about politicians being more easy to target than, than royalty, especially royalty that are not explicitly involved in political decisions something that played into the duke of buckingham's fate is that he was an upjumped gentleman in a highly hierarchical society now he was not he wasn't a peasant by any stretch of the means but he went from a gentleman to the- as high as you can climb without being royalty he became a duke in the sh- in the space of about 8 years that significant ambition that was not seen in a positive sense And this mattered in 17th century Britain, especially considering that royalty was, to a certain extent, and depending on who you were speaking to, God-appointed. So, if you have a problem with what the king is doing, you're kind of having a problem with God's decision, whereas kings themselves are still mortal and make mortal mistakes, like trusting evil counsellors. And everyone had a reason to dislike Buckingham, and to justify his death. Not that he was universally disliked, but every part of society had at least one reason to. Catholics, because he attacked Catholic friends, Francis Spain. Protestants, because he was feared to be a crypto-Catholic. Nobility, because he'd sold titles and he'd climbed the social ladder too quickly. Merchants, because he profited from illegal duties. Supporters of the king, now obviously everyone believed themselves to be a supporter of the king in one way or another, but supporters of the king's agenda possibly were glad to see the back of Buckingham because he was so toxic whereas opponents of the king's agenda were now happy that the person who had been misleading the king with these bad policies was now gone. You can get away with a lot more criticism when you're dealing with just an ordinary person rather than when you're dealing with a member of the royal family, and I think that mattered a lot more to people at the time.
2: History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.
1: One of the interesting comparisons between these these two scenes, uh, early 19th century France and early 17th century England, is the question of legitimacy. In the uh, early 19th century France, obviously there had been multiple regime changes in the course of a generation, from monarchy to republic to empire, back to monarchy, brief revival of the empire, back to monarchy again. Uh, Louis XVIII was, was trying very hard to try to rebuild the legitimacy of the, the Bourbon dynasty and, and monarchy in general, uh, whereas in 17th century England, it's sort of on the other slope. It's always bad to, to sort of read history backwards, but obviously a, a legitimacy crisis for the English monarchy is looming down the future. In, in the French case, the, the, the death of the Duke de Berry, especially because of the posthumous birth of a son and heir, probably ended up being a boost to the legitimacy of the Bourbons in terms of the sympathy it engendered, as well as not uh, eliminating the, the dynasty's future because of the heir. Uh, do you think that the death of the Duke of Buckingham and, and
0: the fallout that happened had any effect on uh, the Stuart's legitimacy? I think it did, in the sense that because Charles continued his course, and because he had reacted so badly to the death, previous evil counsellors had been removed, even as late as James VI and first. He had agreed to remove them, they had been imprisoned in the tower, they had a comfy life after that, they were released within a few days, but the king had taken action, and he had listened to his subjects' concerns, and he had done something about it. Charles had not one of Charles' own subjects had taken matters into his own hands. This cannot have helped his legitimacy one iota. And then you get into what comes afterwards. It becomes readily apparent, even to the most ardent monarchists, that no, Buckingham was not the problem here. Buckingham was maybe adding to the problem, he may have been helping guide it, but the king is still the king, and the problems are still happening. So I think that that played a a significant role in the gradual breakdown of king and subject relations over the coming decade, although I don't think anyone expected it to go quite as far as it eventually did. The other day I read a a
1: really interesting comment talking about modern-day England, in which uh, someone commented about uh, the current Prince Charles as a very long uh, time as the heir apparent, uh, and commented that, uh, you know, not too many centuries ago, someone in Charles' position probably would have had Queen Elizabeth offed to accelerate his own rise up the political ladder, which is an an amusing comment, but it sort of provokes a a deeper idea, which is that today we don't see that many political assassinations, at least in developed countries, because there are other ways to rise up the ladder to affect change. Politicians resign in disgrace all the time. They're pushed out. They're defeated in elections. But in, in both these cases, we have monarchical systems, albeit with functioning parliaments, and... Killing someone was a way to affect political change. I'm wondering what what you think these two parallel episodes tell us about
0: the role of assassination as a political weapon. I think it tells us something about when there's a non-violent, or phrase it a different way, a safer way to affect change, people will generally go for that. I think that, at least in the English sense, the safe legal way of, of, of effecting change, in this case removing the Duke of Buckingham from government, would be impeachment. And that had been repeatedly prevented and blocked by by Charles. And I think that once you start removing the safe, legal options, and yet the problem still persists, you begin to find more, more and more people that are willing to go beyond the legal, peaceful options and start considering more abrupt ways to go about it i mean the siècle so far has how many how many purges have you had how many terrors sanctioned or otherwise yes there's a functioning democracy kind of but it's certainly far from foolproof
1: uh, exactly and and of course when they were talking about the the death of a, a prince even in a, a country that had you know an elected parliament like uh, restoration france did as stuart england did you can't impeach a prince you want to end the, uh, the a dynasty you sort of has to involve violence, whether that's murder or uh, revolution. Uh, the French, of course, had plenty of experience with the latter, uh, uh, both in the past and again in the future. But you know, if, if uh, Louis Pierre Louvel wanted to end the Bourbon dynasty, uh, passing out pamphlets to encourage an impeachment or censure vote in Parliament wouldn't have done anything. This is an old style inheritance system. There's no really no other way
0: to stop the uh, Bourbon dynasty from continuing, unless, of course, that the the left wing actually managed to achieve its its aims and it became more radical then who knows maybe there would have been a legal a abolition of the monarchy but we'll never know because Louvel put a knife into the duke de Berry's heart and it's, it's important to, to keep in mind that much as you talked about how
1: charles had foiled attempts to use the legitimate political means of the day to resolve this this crisis in, in a, a sort of broader sense One of the things related to the backlash after Barry's death was the unwillingness of uh, Louis' government uh, and Louis himself to tolerate a liberal-led government. The the possibility of the liberals gaining a majority was just unfathomable. Louis was was relatively flexible, much more flexible than, than Charles I was or than his brother another charles and and tr- accepted governments of the you know the the center left and the center right and the far right over his his time but he had limits and uh, he was not willing to countenance the the left wing opposition uh, gaining power uh, perhaps sensibly because many of these people though they professed loyalty to the regime secretly would have preferred a different system of government be that a republic or an empire they hadn't really sorted that out yet both before and then, especially after, during the repression, when you know the electoral laws were changed to make it almost impossible, at least in the short run, for liberals to win a majority, there's the sense that uh, the legitimate ways of seizing power had been taken away. So after Barry's death and after this repression, you see the the French left turn toward uh, conspiracies and plots, attempted coups and revolutions, rather than focusing on trying to win elections.
0: So in a sense, you're saying that the government removed the legitimacy of its own function of
1: government. That's certainly one of the, v- the big arguments that's made that the the repressive actions and especially the changing the electoral laws removed some of the democratic legitimacy that the the French charter of government of 1814 had given them. Under this charter the the Bourbons weren't just ruling by divine right, though that's how they certainly preferred to to cast it. They also were ruling with the sanction of an elected body, albeit one elected by only the richest 1% or so of French men. By changing the electoral law and removing it further from that electorate, that sort of removed some of the democratic legitimacy they had. And as it turns out, in the 19th century, at least, and increasingly, as you're about to find out, we're both getting into foreshadowing here, in the 17th century, pure divine right is not necessarily a very firm foundation for a monarchy once you get into the uh, the early modern and modern periods. As the French experience will show, when you sacrifice your other form of legitimacy, another leg of that stool, that can make your regime, while well, perhaps shoring it up in the short
0: run, can severely weaken it in the long run. That's a fair assessment, especially with what's coming for for both our respective monarchs. If I could go back to Louvel for a moment, what was you've already discussed it slightly he had you discussed his fate but what was his uh actual personal legacy very little one of the the interesting things about Louvel, uh this this whole
1: incident uh was just d- devoured in the popular press uh it was hugely popular there were newspapers and pamphlets and books uh that were rushed into into publication uh lots of uh Hagiographies of the Duke de Berry and and his wife, uh, Louvel was was damned as a as a base villain, but uh, again, more usually as a simple tool of uh, the the dastardly liberals. But one of the interesting things is that while an incredible variety of uh, of images were created and and published about this uh, dramatic deathbed uh, pictures, pictures of the assassination, etc., Louvel's face was almost never the same from one image to the other. All, all these uh, these artists who were uh, selling uh, depictions of the murder and the death and, and all that we, we took great care to re- represent uh, the Duke de Berry's uh, features and uh, the, the Duchesse de Berry's features and the King's features and, and everything else. But Louvelle was just this generic figure. Uh, and, you know, he looked uh, surly in one picture and uh, blank in another and uh, just a completely different person, different face, different picture. He was just an anonymous... Uh, hand who had struck, and he was essentially uh, almost forgotten, uh, almost sort of the moment that the the crime had happened and, and the details came out. He was executed in the middle of a fierce political debate that everyone was paying far more attention to. You might expect, oh, this the guy who killed the the prince in the crime of the century, that there would be huge throngs of people uh, attending his execution. N- none of that happened. It was all very quiet and, and, and speedy. He was just... Uh, uh, an afterthought, and, and you—you'd mentioned that uh, Felton was uh, sort of celebrated. How did the somewhat more primitive press of the the seventeenth century treat him?
0: Yeah, it's interesting in comparison because Felton's popular memory fate was completely different to Lavelle's because he was praised. He—he he was a—he was a martyr. He was literally martyred. At least that's what some of the uh, popular press said. And some of the religious imagery is actually quite extreme, almost ridiculous. His final words were said after the fact to have been declaring that he was right to have done what he did, he had no shame, blah blah blah, all this stuff, when in reality he'd followed custom and confessed his regret and followed all the steps that had the best chance that his family would not be punished for his crimes. Things like his body hanging in a gibbet was actually, in this, in this framing, uh, an honour, because he, was no longer, he wasn't going to be stuck in the ground with the filth and the worms, he was closer to God, closer to heaven. His political statement for why he'd killed Buckingham, the one he'd kept it in his hat, once he was captured that was distributed, it was widely published, and people had toasts over his memory and his honour. There was poetry describing his act and claiming he was the Christian warrior that England needed. Felton was compared to Buckingham, him being manly and brave and Protestant, and Buckingham being effeminate and cowardly and a crypto-Catholic. It was it could not have been more different to the popular treatment of Louvel, and I think that comes down to what we were talking about earlier. One was at least the vocal minority, if not a majority of people, considered him a villain, and the Duc de Berry, who was not yeah the uh Felton's political statement was widely
1: circulated. Louvel's uh, openly confessed political motivation for uh, killing the Bourbons was uh, effectively suppressed. It wasn't, often didn't become widely known until much later. And you'd mentioned that Felton was sort of treated in the popular press with sort of overt, explicitly religious imagery. And in France, it was Barry uh, and his wife uh, and their unborn son who were the, the focus of this sort of religious depiction. The The son was, was dubbed the Miracle Child. There were prayer, very florid prayers that were issued all around Around the country for the uh, the health of the mother and the unborn child. And, and Barry was sort of cast off as this martyr himself, who had been martyr to the dynasty, to the the great family of the Bourbons, etc. All of which was, was very ironic, because in life, Barry was known as sort of a lout and a cad. Uh, in fact, the, the only reason that he ended up dying and getting Killed on this this night uh, at the the Paris Opera was because after dropping his wife off in her carriage, he turned to go back into the opera for the reason that he had a mistress who was a a dancer there and uh, wanted to uh, arrange a rendezvous. And in, in fact, his mistress would also give birth to a posthumous uh, illegitimate Barry child. Uh, there are in fact four children born to Barry uh, after his death. Uh, one the the famous miracle child, as well as three illegitimate children. So, but all this was sort of washed away in in a, a, a glorious. Death, death, death was a, as they say today, sometimes a very good career move for the uh, Duke de Berry.
0: <laughs> that sounds right. Did them? I've just got a quick question about that. How were the other three bastard miracle children treated in the press? Were they also not talked about? Uh, the, the public press didn't, doesn't usually get into illegitimate children like that,
1: especially with the degree of censorship that uh, the Bourbons had. But some of these children ended up marrying quite well. You know, for illegitimate children of, of commoners. Uh, being their only official connection, some of them married n- nobility and managed to to do well for themselves. But probably the only one the only one of real historic note is the Comte de Chambord, his his legitimate child, the the miracle baby. Uh, he was the one who would, would be a political actor over the course of the century. The the rest are just a an amusing historical footnote. Well, there's worse things to be. Well Sam, uh, thanks for uh hopping on a call to discuss this. I've been really enjoying uh your uh lead up to the coming turmoil in uh seventeenth century England and thought it was it was interesting the uh the parallels as France
0: approaches its own turmoil uh in uh the nineteenth century. Thank you for having me on. I've been loving the Siècle, and I had I hadn't put it into quite the same terms that you had when you approached me to discuss this, but I was thinking it's like, huh. What a coincidence that we came to two great political murders, roughly around the same time. Well, good luck with uh, your next episode, Sam. I'll let you get back to your research. (laughs) And you to yours.
3: I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, We'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first, due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.